1: So that's time, time that I've learned that you'll never get that back. So make sure you make the right decisions in life, because every minute, every second, every hour of the day, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection, and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to It Ain't Week to Speak with Sam Webb. I'm excited to have you here. I hope you're excited to be here. And if you're new, Welcome. I hope wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening to this right now, you're full of gratitude and full of open ears and an open mind because that's what this podcast requires. I'm not asking you to change things and to take everything on from my guests or myself and think that that's what's right. All I ask is if you come onto the podcast, you listen, you take parts of it, what suit you and what syncs with you well, and own that as best as you possibly can. Any feedback, like always, please share it with either myself or Livin, and we'll post that and share it directly. If you have any recommendations as to who you'd love to see on the podcast, please put them forward. I'd love to hear of any selections everyone has. That's what this podcast community is all about. Episode number 64 today is with a guy by the name of Soa the Hulk. Now, if you don't know who this guy is, you're about to know who he is. He is a professional retired UFC fighter if you know what UFC is great if you don't you're going to learn a shit ton on this episode he's had a number of fights he's been through a hell of a lot of hardship he sh- he actually shares his own mental health journey and his own mental health challenges still up until this very day he's a family man i asked so the hulk why did you fight in the UFC now having played professional rugby and all that sort of stuff he's like i don't know i just you know wanted to do it i liked being hit in the face And then he said, I actually did it, and I fought to stay alive. Now, let those words sink in with you. I fought to stay alive in the UFC. Now, Soa the Hulk is an unbelievably beautiful human being who does exceptional things in the world, from acting to mentoring to keynote speaking. And he actually also started his own mental health project where he goes into big mining sites around Australia called Strong Mines. He's an author for the book, Face Your Fears, and he's had a number of world championship belts and all of that great stuff, which I don't even need to get into because we're going to talk about that on this podcast. I'm so excited to get this bloke on the podcast. I've been meaning to talk to him for quite a while. I actually ran into him in, in Western Australia a few years ago with mutual friends, Maddie actually, Maddie who played for the Western Forest, who was a massive advocate for living and he's helped us out so much over the years. So we're all very, very excited. The community always comes together. It's such a small world. I'm glad and I'm grateful that I got this guy's time. So I want to get him on the podcast. And before I do though. I just want to report from Livin HQ, everyone's well, things are going really well, our year is is going from strength to strength, we're always grateful for, for everyone's support, you know, because Livin wouldn't really be what it is today without that support from fundraisers, people listening to these podcasts like you guys, people buying our collections of merch, people booking our programs, fundraising for us, I mean, the list goes on, none of this is possible without that, so thank you. And I also want to report just on my own mental health journey since since I spoke with you guys last about it. Always learning like most of you. We're always learning in life. One thing I've definitely felt that's working for me over these past couple of weeks is probably really just trying to focus in on one thing at a time. I tend to go pretty quick in my life. I set really high expectations. I'm a perfectionist, so to speak. So I'm really trying to taper that back. What's kind of works for me is giving myself a bit of that flexibility to kind of not be always on and not to always achieve things and be okay with knocking off a few things on the, on the to-do list instead of trying to knock out everything in a day. If that helps you in any kind of way, and you can feel the same way, I hope it does. If not, awesome. All good. But anyway, let's get So the Hulk man onto this podcast, eh? Welcome Soa. Well, welcome onto the podcast, Sower the Hulk, mate. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, mate. Long time since I've uh, had a chat with you, mate. W- welcome. What's been going on?
1: Mate, like we all do, you're trying to do the right things, but uh, it's obviously good to bump into you again. And uh, when you reach out to us, uh, mate, automatically, yes, let's let's get on and talk to ship, I guess. But uh, mate, I think the last time we kind of spoke was uh, Matt Hodges was doing a run thing around some lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At just in Perth. And you've come a long way as well.
2: Mate, things have changed since i um seeing you. I used to live, obviously, in Sydney at the time. And I was over in Perth just visiting and, obviously, spending time with Maddie and the family and then doing the living event and, and catching up with the team and the community and the volunteers. But now I'm in L.A., man, and I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful to be here, just, yeah, similar to you, man, just, just uh, trying to make difference in the world as best as we can. And, mate, I'm really grateful for your time to get you on the podcast. I know you're doing, obviously, a lot of work in mine sites in particular, in Western Australia is that correct
1: yeah, no, yeah yeah, that's what we do up on the sites and stuff so I mean that's good the schools are more my passion so I love doing stuff from the stuff from for the schools because I think if we can educate them and uh, at a school level by the time they get into the big world number one they know how to have that conversation they know how to reach out and because uh, a lot of the people and I'm sure you know you know as well a lot of people you speak to now don't know how to have the conversation don't know how to reach out and not educated on on mental health so um yeah i think it all starts you know yeah as as they're kids so i love the stuff i do for the schools because we can change them in a better way and in a positive way and uh you know as they get older they, they know kind of about mental health so it's been it's been a good good journey
2: yeah mate, absolutely. It's a very meaningful journey for sure. So, let's rewind the clock though. Let's let's take this back prior and then and then because I want to I want to bridge the gap for all of the listeners and everyone who will be listening to this podcast and when we share it and everything else. Your journey back from I guess growing up as a young fella. The meaning of mental health was it something you spoke about then? Was it something that started in your in your fighting career as a professional? Talk to me through that earlyhood and where, where fighting became something you were very passionate about and where you ended up in the in the UFC.
1: So it all started Newcastle, New South Wales, is where I was uh, born at Newcastle. So I'm a Newcastle boy. So um, I was brought up, uh, went to Tonga as a kid as well, kind of brought up there. And um, mum, I'm not sure why mum and dad sent me over to Tonga because uh, the only thing you can do in Tonga is climb coconut trees, sip on coconuts and uh, sit by the beach. So it was awesome because I got to kind of learn the language, the heritage, just where my parents were from and uh, also got to hang out with the cousins so that, so that was good but I spent a lot of my time growing up in Newcastle with my mom's brother so as a childhood um, growing up in Newcastle we had a lot of uh, hurdles that uh, we went through discipline as a kid in, in Tongan culture is it's hard you know you get uh, abused and you go through that physical abuse So as you grow up and get older, it does make you stronger. But it's one of those things that if not spoken about and reached out to have chats with people, in some cases, you might get to that stage where you're sitting there kind of thinking about suicide, having those kind of destructive thinking kind of stuff. So a lot of times in Tongan culture, we can talk. We couldn't have that conversation. We couldn't talk because we are kind of seen as...
2: About mental health or talk about anything yeah, straight, about that you struggling health with?
1: Mostly, um, you know, because we are see, seen to be the kind of the warriors, the kind of thing. So I kind of kept it to myself for a long time. Where does that come from? Where
2: does that come from? Where does the warrior mentality, is that something that's just embedded into the Tongan culture and the
1: heritage? Back in the days when we were going to war, like in canoes, we went like in big uh, warships like uh, they do now, but it's like, if you're going to go to war, you go to war with, with Fiji or Samoa and you hop in a wooden boat and then you kind of, you're on your way there. So it's the whole warrior thing back in the day. So that's, I think that's, that's how it's all kind of perceived, I guess. And, and that, so, so I never got to reach out to anyone as you know as, as you grow older and, and uh, you've kept a lot of things to yourself. And, uh, and, and it did, it kind of took a toll on my mental health, took a toll on, on me personally. I played a lot of sports, played rugby. I was also contracted to Bristol over in England, playing uh, for Bristol. So Bob Dwyer was the, was the ex-Wallaby coach for, at that time. So a lot of good players. I was over there, so I contracted. played sports, played high-level basketball and that as well. So, but I never got to where I needed to get to until I actually started fighting. So that gave me the outing where I can kind of get my frustrations out. And that's how kind of basically how it all started. And I guess i get to that stage in life where I kind of didn't, obviously didn't reach out and that and kind of uh, had those suicidal thoughts. But I had many, many times where I had those kind of suicidal thoughts. So, But ran away from Newcastle as a kid as well. So reconnected with my mum and dad But uh, from then on. I think just thought to myself, the coping mechanisms that I was kind of using at the time was the UFC, you know, hopping in the octagon and feeling that that person were across the arena. It wasn't the person I was fighting. It was also my demons that I was fighting. It was the person that hurt me as a kid. So that gave me the kind of, it just fired me up. Buffer would be announcing my name, sold a whole from Perth, Western Australia, and I'll be just like ready to rock and roll. He's a smile from, from across and i was thinking, man, bring it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to F you up. At what
2: age do you reckon, like given all the, the growing up through the Tongan culture, the heritage and understanding that speaking up and talking about how you're feeling and your struggles, you know, life was pretty tough, right, for you? I'm hearing that. When did you realize, at what point, at what age did you realize, holy shit, I'm I'm not doing too well. Like I'm actually struggling with something that I don't think I can talk about. Was there a
1: certain pivotal point in your life where you realized that? I think as a kid growing up in Newcastle, around seven years old, I was just, I kind of realized that this shouldn't be the way it should be. But and I think to myself, why me? Like as a kid, you don't understand, you know, why you're getting hurt. It just ended up being normality. But then you finally realize that it's trauma that you go through as a kid. And as you grow older to an adult, you kind of use these kind of coping mechanisms. And I knew that it was even though it was a band-aid over mental health problems that I that I was having, and it helped me at that time when I was fighting the UFC, but I knew one day if I didn't get help, I knew one day I was gonna be in really big trouble. It was gonna explode one day.
2: I appreciate you sharing that with us and part of your journey. How did you go from playing rugby and contracting overseas to then going, all right, I'm going to start fighting? And and what did that journey look like for you? Like, obviously, you probably would have put a lot of your own purpose and your inner demons and everything into this training regime and this sense of purpose and belonging. But where did that start for you where you go, oh, I should be a fighter? What made you feel like that?
1: When I started training, I started wrestling first, and uh, traveled around the world. Kind of went to Brazil. I lived in Brazil a little bit. Went to went and stayed with BJ Penn in Hawaii, and went to uh, Las Vegas and just traveled, just kind of learning the art of jujitsu. Then getting punched in the face. I think, mate. It, it, I, I don't know about you, Sam, but I don't know if you've got punched in the face. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I have plenty of time. Uh, mate, it's like one of those things. Like, man, I was like. I kind of loved it. It's like, damn, bring it on. Like, when I do mental health presentations, I say, mate, I don't have a normal job, but, you know, I get punched in the face for a living. So, if that doesn't give you mental health problems, I don't know what will, but that kind of helped me. And I thought, man, this I love this. Like, because I played rugby and I played all other sports, but this was actually this sport. I thought, this is my calling. You know, and you use that to help me. Because at the end of the day, I didn't want to fight. Sometimes I sit in the back and I'm thinking to myself, man, like, be looking at the things in a nine-to-five job like back in Perth. But as you come out and then the people are just screaming and then you're just like on, oh, like you need to be on. A lot of the times that I fought and I lost is because mentally I wasn't there. And this is the kind of sport, if you don't bring it, man, or you bring half-hearted, man, you're going to get knocked out.
2: Yeah, in front of a lot of people too. Now, I've always wanted to know, as a UFC fighter, going into the UFC as a professional MMA fighter, do you actually have to have any kind of belts from a Brazilian jiu-jitsu kind of background okay back in the
1: day where you just like if you were a badass man you're gonna get fights but of course you have to accumulate fights outside the ufc so with me i accumulated fights and, and then when then i signed with the UFC in 2007. i remember signing the ufc it was awesome you know i was one of the first ufc fighters to come out of australia from perth it was on the only ufc fighter come out of perth but there was a few other kind of Guys that, you know, within the UFC that, that have come from probably about one or two people. Um, obviously, there's a lot, lot more guys from Australia now, but, you know, signing that first contract, I was thinking, geez, man, I'm representing you know, out of Australia. And, like, and I remember I was at Team Quest. Team Quest is where I was at. Dan Henderson, I was living with Dan Henderson, uh, and they had like an array of like top athletes, like from Matt Lillian to Soccer Joe, Mayhem Miller, top of the range guys. So I was training with them, and it kind of woke me up a little bit. I was with Team Quest and signed with the UFC. 2007 was awesome. We're walking out, 20,000 people, you got millions of people watching on TV, your friends, your family back home. Man, I got my ass kicked in that first fight. I can't remember that fight, but Eddie Sanchez really handed it to me. But I was supposed to be going into that fight, you know, next big thing to come into UFC. Went in and got my ass kicked. I think I just got stage fright. And I really, I, I don't even remember. I don't know if you've got stage fright, you know, Sam, but it is what it is. And uh, I remember they ripped up the contract, man. And they said, mate, you, you are never coming back into the UFC again. I had to have nine fights before I got back into the UFC. So they said, you're never coming back into the UFC. But I took a break for about a year. And then, mate, I was just eating everything. Like a lot of people find comfort in, in something, whether it's alcohol, whether it's, you know, what drugs or whatever it is, but uh, to deal with a depression, anxiety. But I was sitting on the couch and I was eating food, McDonald's, cheesecakes, everything, you name it, KFC. I was eating a lot more KFC than what normal people would eat. But man, I blew out to about 170 kilos. What was
2: your mental health like at this stage?
1: Oh, bad. It was bad. The it worst it's bad. been, you
2: reckon, or it was just bad?
1: It was bad. And it was running downhill. I was having was heart spiraling. problems. I it was spiraling, spiraling down, downhill. But to say that, mate, six months before that, six to seven months before that, I was fighting in the UFC and I was weighing in at 120 kilos. So to be weighing in at around 165, 170 was a massive turnaround. I was just eating nonstop, and then I thought to myself. I woke up one morning I had heart, you know, heart problems. I thought, man, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. So I thought, man, you know what? I need to make a move. And I went to a gym and I said, "Man, guys, Southern CrossFit was its gym knocked, you know, knocked on the door. And goes, guys, my name's Soul the Hulk, but I know I look like Soul the Bulk." can you help me get back into the UFC but also I need to lose weight man because this is ridiculous so and then we started the journey back so i had about nine fights before they even said you know it was like three fights hey guys can you know can I come back and said mate you're dreaming and hung up the phone all of a sudden again six so you know after six fights and Mate, I had a I had a, a space of six fights in six months. Normally, when fighters had fights, I might have fight, someone had three fights a year, maybe two. But man, I had six fights in six months. So I literally, nearly had nine fights in like a space of about a year, just over a year. So,
2: mate, how was your fitness? Your fitness must have been unreal.
1: Yeah, but in saying that, Sam, you know what? If you lose a fight, mate, you're done. So if I went five fights and I lose a fight, mate, you got to start back. To, 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 to oh, so this they fight.
2: wanted you to have nine fights on the win, on the try.
1: No. no, 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 no. They didn't. But at any stage, any could happen, you get a, could you get hit, you could get knocked out. So if you lose a fight, they said, oh, no, you lost a fight. But literally, because I had you know, four, five, six, seven, all the way to nine, they go, okay, you deserve to come back to the UFC. But also collected a few world titles along the way. Three, three world titles. So you titles. got three
2: world titles, don't you? You got three world titles. You've had, what, 22 or something wins in the UFC as a professional?
1: Yeah, 28, 28. Yeah, eight fights in the UFC, so...
2: Okay, beautiful. So you've got your back-to-back wins. You make the call. I'm getting back into the UFC. What was that moment like for you? And how do you reckon you turned it all around? Was it the health scare of, fuck, I've put on too much weight. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. I really need to do something here.
1: Otherwise, I'm going to die. Or Was that the turning point for you? You know what? I think it was the, I don't want to be 60 and then look at my grandkids and say, hey, listen, I made a run to the UFC. I could have kept going, but no, I kind of retired. So I wanted to come back. I wanted to leave something that, you know, that wasn't me back then. That's not the Hulk. This is the Hulk now. So, and then I went on a tear. I went on a tear when I came back. Proved a lot of of people wrong. The first fight back in the UFC was against Nikita Kralov, a Russian guy. I broke my rib the week before that. And I remember when I was at Milwaukee and I spoke to a guy named Michael Gordon. So he was a doctor for the Milwaukee bucks. Like the USC didn't know that I had a broken rib because if I would have told him, they, I wouldn't have fought. They wouldn't have let you fought. Yeah. No, hundred percent. So he said, mate, your ribs fractured. So I said, well, can you give me like something, give me like a cortisone injection? And he goes, no, because if we give you it and you broke, and then you'll be hanging off. You won't know you've been flying back and all of a sudden you've had problems. So I said, okay. So he gave me some tablets. And even then, I wasn't even able to take those tablets. It was like Nurofen, taking Nurofen, but it was bad. So I um, fought. The doctor did a checkup before I was about to fight. He started feeling my ribs. He said, mate, you all right? You can't breathe? I'm like, I'm struggling because I'm struggling because he's kept um, grabbing the, the rib. Oh. And um, I ended up coming out. I fought. It was pretty bad. I thought, you know, we're going to, all going to get him early and try to knock him out early. It did. It went to the third round, but I was struggling to breathe. The second round, i told telling my team, I can't breathe. And the team goes no. The co- the directs come over and said, "Hey, are you okay?" And then the one one of my team guys go, "No, no, he's fine. He's fine. He's just whinging. He's he's fine." Then the ref goes, are "You sure?" And I go, "Yeah, you're yeah, fine." something, I thought, oh, you fucker." So lucky because I get in when we get in there. I just thought, you know what? I'm just gonna throw the biggest punch and hit him, and then he went down. So that was it. And
2: then wow. won the fight. You won the fight after all of that. Uh, yeah what was the training camps not like for you in like some of the hardest fights you've ever had in your life like how long are they are they and are, are they pretty 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 intense
1: mma is like everything you've got boxing kickboxing you've got all all in one package and singing shit so you have to mix it up but then with strength conditioning so i think that was the hardest thing trained the training wise and then you're getting punched in the face from mark hunt and tied to Ibasa. so Ty's killing it in the ufc now but I remember when Ty came over to help me for one of my camps and man, they're heavy hitters, but just the training I needed. Cause I was at Thailand with uh, Mike Swig and then Mark came over, Ty was over there and then the rest of the camp was over there. So a lot of the guys, the Samoans, and you know, that you actually see in the UFC, they were like part of our training camps. Justin Tuffer, you got Carlos, he's in there. So mate, it's one of those things that you pass the torch on. And Do you miss fighting at all? Yes and no. If I see it, I think, oh, man, it brings you back because you can smell the canvas. You can yeah. smell the
2: – It's very visceral. It's very visceral, oh, isn't mate. it? mate.
1: And I get sweaty as well. My hands go sweaty. My feet go sweaty. It's like it's I'm kind of the exciting. Stuff.
2: It gets you stimulated. It gets you worked up. Like, get me in there, man. Get me in there. So what's something you don't miss about it? Like, what was something you really didn't enjoy about it? Was there anything? The training. <laughs> training, the training. The training camps. <laughs> They're bloody hard. But you guys go for so long in the ring. And then, like, mate, the fitness is insane at the moment, Ave. Eh?
1: The hardest training was the uh, AKA training. It's a 30-minute workout. So you go one minute on the air dye and you're sprinting for one minute. Then you hop off, you're kicking the pads. Then you hop back on for one minute, hop back, you're wrestling. Then you hop back for one minute on the air dine. So it's like a 30-minute workout. But that is equivalent to being in the ring, in the cage, for like five-minute five rounds, one-minute rest. No
2: way. Mate, the fitness, it is incredible, man. I I actually take my hat off to people who fight, box, UFC, kickboxing, whatever. It's an art in itself, technically, but fitness, it is a whole different beast, man. Like, it is fucking insane.
1: And you know, I mean, you know, because you've kind of fought in the way that you had to train to get in. I'm, otherwise a, you can... I'm a
2: rookie. I'm a rookie and I was struggling. And I was I had three, three minute rounds and I was sitting there just cooked after the first round and I put so much fitness in... Trained so hard for 12 weeks and thought this was easy. And then it's another thing on top of that for you. It's like you've got to hit your peak too at the right time, don't you? Otherwise, you end up cooking yourself going
1: into the fight. That was me. My first MMA fight was against a guy named Brad Morris over in Sydney. And it's literally emptied the gas tank in the first round. I thought to myself, I've got three more rounds to go. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck. It's your first fight, right? You, just, you don't know what to expect. And it's like if I was to change anything, now than what I was before I would be changing the way I train only because literally before I'd be training like you know five to seven hours a day and that's just nuts like now it'd be like train smarter you get in there you smash it 45 minutes out the door you get wear and tear and you know my shoulders my back my knees what was
2: the biggest thing mate you've learned through just through that part of your life that just that one journey in your life what what was the biggest thing you sort of took away from it
1: I fought for me to stay alive I reckon if I didn't fight, I probably would have suicided. And the reason why I say that is because when I used to win the fights in the UFC, I'd be sitting in the back and I'd be in the toilet and crying. I literally would be sitting there and crying. Why? I couldn't reach out to my coach. I couldn't say, coach, man, I'm struggling because I was scared or I guess I was assuming that they'd probably turn around and say, hey, mate, you're the Hulk. You're going to get over it, mate. But... In reality, if I said something to my coach, my coach probably would have said, you know what, so let's, let's go get your help. So I was using the UFC as a mechanism to kind of stay alive, but also it helped me at that time of my life. So I think the time where it all finished is when I actually went in and and seen the person that kind of hurt me as a kid. So when I faced that person and he said, sorry, and then from then on, I didn't have that passion anymore to fight. So it was like, what else is there for me to fight? I've already faced my fears. So there's nothing else for me to do. Mate, that's very
2: powerful. It's very powerful. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. With the whole forgiveness piece and going back to person that had a connection with you when you were young and maybe where all that trauma came from, was it a sense of relief for you? Yeah, 100%.
1: Everything off the shoulders kind of lifted off my shoulders. I thought to myself, oh, shit. Wow. Now I can move forward. I had a lot of demons, man. A lot of times I couldn't say to my kids, I couldn't, you know, hang out with my kids because I, I spent a lot of time away from them. I couldn't show love to the kids as well. So, And that's my fault because I didn't get help. It was more like a fist pump high five. It was never a big hug. And So saying, so, you know, I love your kids, you know. but it wasn't like solid and affectionate. And yeah, stuff. yeah. Because I didn't know. I didn't know.
2: You probably didn't have that when you were young.
1: No, because i got no one showing me love as a kid, you know, so
2: you had no solid role model that would assist you and that's
1: but i did realize that though sam was like at the end of the day, my kids didn't care about if i was fighting the ufc and all they cared about and i didn't realize this for a while is that me being there for them you know right, if they're at school doing a school carnival hundred meters sprint looking back there's mum dad or just you know about to do something at school or just being there for them i guess when you talk about things in life the decisions you make in life you know you need to make the right kind of decisions anything can happen anytime you know every minute every second of the day every hour you know, your whole world can turn upside down. So, you know, my oldest daughter, she saved my life, and I, I give her credit in the way of, you know, I'm so thankful that she saved my life because I was about to hang hang myself. You know, I mean, I sent him a message and everything, telling him I love him and thing, uh, and standing on the chair about to go rope around my neck. Kind of yeah, she saved my life. And I thought, but in saying that, I thought to myself, man, what am I doing? Like, the fuck am I doing? I want to be there for the for the kids. But when when I do talk about suicide, I'm not a coward for thinking about suicide. No one's a coward for thinking about suicide because I understand the ripple effect that's going to happen to my family, my friends. It's going to happen if I did do it. I just had a lot of stuff going on in my heart that I just had a lot of hurt going on. I thought no one cared for me. No one gave a shit. It was just kind of destructive thinking stuff that I was thinking about. So,
2: What was the changing point? Obviously, your daughter sort of saved your life. What was that moment for you like? like can you walk me through with it? Can you talk about that in...
1: Me being there for them, like I I wanted to be there for them. So in order for me to be there for them, my family, my friends, I needed to kind of go get help. So I think that was a turning point, 100%, yeah. And I'm so glad. And I guess that's why I'm on a tear with this whole mental health because I understand what people go through. And if I can tell my story, and if my story can empower and encourage what other people to tell their story, I think sharing stories of it, mate, that saves lives. You know, because you could stand there and talk about stats all day, but if you just tell a story about what you're going through in your life and what you have gone through, man, other people go, you know what, Sam, I just had the Hulk talking about this, and man, I can do it. I need to go see somebody. So
2: It's an empowering way to spread love for people who might not be able to speak. Yeah. And you're helping them speak or seek help in a way that's kind of unique and it's special, mate. So I appreciate that and appreciate, obviously, all the work that you're doing. When you look back now, right, as so the Hulk today... On the 18th of of February 2022, obviously it's a new year and you, you reflect. And I'm sure, I don't know how often you do it, but you probably reflect on some of those dark demon moments in your life where you were probably contemplating suicide or you're at your darkest of depths. What would you tell that person right now when you're coming from a really stable mindset, thinking clearer, more solid, got a union of family around you and friends? What would you tell that person that's struggling today?
1: Reach out, reach out to somebody anybody and just have a conversation and get help whether it's a person that you trust might be a friend don't assume anything on what they're going to say and don't be embarrassed or ashamed and that was me i was embarrassed and ashamed so just reach out and have that conversation or find something that will help you whatever it is like whether it's meditation then that might get you into, you know, kind of reaching out. So I think the only thing is just kind of making sure you get help reaching out. And even people that there are out there as well that making sure that they look after their friends. Because if you see someone that is struggling and you'll see the signs because no one knows knows you better than your friends. Just ask them the question, are you okay? But at the end of the day, I love what you guys stand for and that you guys hashtag it all the time. It ain't weak to speak, you know. So that's something that, that is pretty powerful, you know.
2: Appreciate you sharing part of that journey with us. It probably segues me on to, was the book part of this whole journey?
1: Mate, the book was a mistake. Okay. Why? Well, when it went to release it, there was some media stuff that came out and my mum and dad read it. Well, they didn't read it. Some other people, the family members read it. They called my mum and dad up and said, mate, what are you doing? What is he doing? He's bringing the, the name down. And that's that whole Tongan culture. It doesn't matter if it's Tongan, if it's Samoan, if it's Fijian, you know. They told me, "Look, you're gonna bring our name down." And then I thought about it, and I thought, "Oh, geez." And I told my my sister, "I said, mate, shut it down. Don't tell them not the thing. It's too late. Fourteen thousand books have already been sent on the first day, and there's more books going out." So then I thought, "Oh, I thought about it, and I thought, man, you know what? If this can help somebody out there by read, them reading the book and giving them encouragement to take a stance, and you know, then you know what? If it saves someone's life, it saves someone's life. And then from then on, I just kind of let it happen." no doubt it
2: saved plenty of lives mate and helped you you know share your story to the people that you probably aren't fortunate enough to get to in human form or speak to online or whatever it is with all your programs that you're doing through strong minds and what do you do today to stay well like you talk about having the band-aid on it before playing sports and it went to boxing and then kickboxing and UFC and MMA and that was like this band-aid which kind of made you want to live it was the thing that kept you alive what are the things that keep you positive today? That keep you excited about life?
1: What I'm doing now, when I go to the mining companies up on site, going to the schools, doing the presentations, that's what keeps me alive. Helping people. So this is my calling, and by using my platform or what stuff that I'm, I'm doing, other stuff that I'm doing, where I'm doing movies or some of like that, I use that platform to kind of push the mental health and that as well. So that's what I'm doing now. I still do. I still train. Not like I used to, but uh just just to kind of kinda of keep mentally in the fit. Definitely helps doing a bit of bit of bit of
2: physical movement and stuff. And, and look, it doesn't help for everyone, but you said it works for you, it works for me. It's a game changer in life. And I and I know you dabble a little bit in film and TV, mate, do you? Where'd this little uh penny drop from?
1: I've been doing that for I guess the last I think ten years, I think.
2: That's mate, that's unreal. You and me both.
1: So is that why you're over there?
2: Yeah, mate, I'm, I'm definitely over here to help, you know, obviously to pursue some of my passions and film and TV, the entertainment industry is one of them. It's a bloody tough industry, mate, to crack, but like anything I do, I won't give up until I uh, get what I want or set myself out for.
1: I'm supposed to be in LA, but because of COVID and lockdowns and stuff, is, is kind of thing so I'll, I'll wait until everything opens up then i'll head over to la so we're going to have to catch up but i've got a lot of contacts over there but the film stuff that we're doing at the moment we've got some pretty good ones coming up and, and i'm really excited about it because i always wanted to learn it and doing films i guess the first film i did was um son of a gun that was with uh, matt Napel and he's an no, yeah. oh, unbelievable actor Oh, uh, ewan mcgregor brenton thwaites uh nash edgerton and we're still friends to this day. It's it's funny how we kind of send messages.
2: Do you find it therapeutic? Cuz I definitely do. I love the art form, like being in that moment, like the zone. Do you do you get any similarities, mate, between being in the acting moment versus being in the moment in the UFC ring?
1: Oh, 100%. You know what? It's just something new for me to learn. I just thought just hopping on the camera, you just do your thing, and, but you actually got to learn. It's like we're talking now. It's like we're having a conversation. So when it's on screen, it's like the way they're talking. And I'm still learning how to be a great actor. I remember when I did 1% with Aaron Pedersen, awesome actor. And just kind of learning and sitting there kind of talking to these great actors and the things that they tell you, it's like, wow, it's like crazy. But hey, listen, I've got a film coming out this year. It's called Avarice. So yeah, stay tuned for that.
2: Mate, that's unreal. Good on you. Good on you for chasing those dreams, mate, and living out your goals and your passions. And that. I love that stuff, man. That's exactly what we're here for. Before we finish up, I do want to ask you a really important question and I know all the great work that you've done over your life so far and there's still plenty of it left. It sounds like you've got an amazing network of people around you doing amazing work and I'm going to share all of your notes and everything in the in the show notes. Awesome. With the work that you do in the mines, your website, your social medias and all that sort of great stuff. But I want to ask you one question to finish off this show and, and in this one question I'm going to ask you, Over the course of the years, looking back, what is the one thing that's really stood out to you that you've learned? Something that you could teach, maybe someone that's listening right now.
1: Time, time is the most important thing. Time that you'll never get back. So that's the most important thing. My mum passed away four years ago. I used to go there and be on my phone. I used to be be texting somebody. She goes, she son, it's good to see you. And then I used to go, okay, mum, you know. And then she goes, son, talk to me, get off your phone. And one day she turned around and goes, I'm gonna give you some advice. She goes, fame and money will mean nothing when I'm gone. And I went, I used to laugh, and I go, all right, mum, she's gone now. I understand I'll give anything away just to have 15 minutes. Everything I've got, just to have 15 minutes with my mum. So that's time, time that I've learned that you'll never get that back. So make sure that you make the right decisions in life because every minute, every second, or every hour of the day, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that goes for anyone out there that's kind of listening to this podcast. So make it worthwhile, but also making sure that every decision you make is the right decisions as well, because um, the people that you love, your friends, your family, and that making sure that you put quality time into them because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So,
2: so uh, mate, that was some of the best piece of advice that I've heard in quite a long time. And that's something that's hit home for myself. So I do appreciate you sharing that. And I'm very sorry to hear about your mum. Mate, very very touching. Gave me goosebumps on my arm, man. That was amazing advice, and and I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. I love the work that you're doing, man, in the community, in the schools, in the mining camps. Spreading love, brother. Spreading love. Keep spreading love, and hopefully, whenever lockdown finishes, mate, in Perth, <laughs> you can get your ass mate, over to LA. Mate,
1: we're gonna hook up when I get up there, brother. For sure, man. For
2: sure, I'm gonna. We're going to connect, man. Going to catch up. I'll share everything with our great audience. It's been a real pleasure, mate, having you on here. So grateful for your time, bro. All
1: right, bro. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Weak to Speak. Please like, share, and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, stay well, keep living, and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you and have a top day.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.